Well, when celebration goes bad, here we see on stage was a celebration, a celebration of my fictitious birthday. And it sounded good. Jeremy, if Jeremy's still here, good job. Sang it clearly, sang it well, and all of you sang it well as well. That was until Paul messed it up. And he did it at my command, at my request. So thank you, Paul, brother. Thank you. But Paul messed it up when he brought in his own agenda. And this illustrates very well our point for the passage for today. Because our passage for today is about a celebration. A wonderful celebration, a fantastic celebration, the Lord's Supper. But it's all about how it can all go horribly wrong. It can go totally bad when people press in their own agenda. Isn't this true in general? I mean, people and agendas, don't you hate it? And it's true for our passage for today. But what I want you to see, even as we approach this passage, is the sheer extent of the disaster here. It's something really to be marveled at. Because it's almost incomprehensible for us. Some people, Paul says, are getting sick, are weak, and are actually dying because they have messed up the Lord's Supper. Now rest easy, no musicians will be harmed as a result of today. But this is an extraordinary point, if you think about it. This is amazing. Something has happened here in Corinth that has caused some people to actually die. Watch this space. We'll come back to this in a minute. But what all this goes to illustrate is how important our passage is for us to understand for today. It's important because, of course, we all want to know what this dire problem is so that we don't commit it. All right? Correct? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also important, get this, it's also important because we want to understand this problem so that we don't apply this warning passage to ourselves when it doesn't apply. Do you get that? See, I have a sneaking suspicion that lots of people are suffering in silence when it comes to the Lord's Supper. For lots of people across the world, across history even, the Lord's Supper hasn't really been a celebration at all. Why? Because of this passage. When you see things like people are getting sick, they're weak, and they're dropping dead, you think to yourself, I need to understand the cause of the carnage. The problem is, for a lot of people, they don't understand fully what it means. What does it really mean that these people have not recognized the body? What exactly have they done? And what does that mean for you and I today? See, if we're not clear about what causes the carnage, then this will never be a celebration for you. It's a little bit like eating fish with bones in it. I hate that. Anyone else don't like fish with bones? It's kind of like watermelon with too many pips, right? I don't mind fish. I grew up right near the ocean. I love fish. But I hate eating fish with bones in it. And why? Because you never quite know if you're going to swallow a bone. And so every mouthful you take, you can't enjoy that mouthful. You can't actually enjoy the fish because you're worried about swallowing a bone. For lots of people, the Lord's Supper can be like eating fish with lots of bones in it. 
You're never quite sure if you've sinned in some awful way against the body and blood of Christ by, for example, some unconfessed sin, or perhaps by coming with the wrong frame of mind, or maybe by being distracted, or, or maybe as you pulled in the parking lot this morning, you swore under your breath at someone who cut in and took your park, or maybe you had a fight with your husband. Maybe one of these or all of these things will exclude you. And see, then a cloud lies over the entire experience of the Lord's Supper. It is a celebration gone bad. Well, this morning, I want to set you free. I want to remove the cloud that can hang over us and make the sun shine on you. I want to liberate you. I want to set you free by bringing some understanding, some clarity to this passage. Yes, of course, I want to warn you if you need to be warned. But I would love to also clarify for you once and for all what is and is not the warning that's going on in this passage. So that for the rest of your life even, the Lord's Supper might be a celebration. You see, this can be a milestone this morning. I have high ambitions for you and I this morning. That this could actually be a cementing for you, a turning of the corner for some of you. That from now on, you might be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have lots of things going on this morning. We're not celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, which is fine. But that's not my goal, the immediate. My goal is the end game, is the long game, that you might have a full understanding of the Lord's Supper. And therefore, that it may be a celebration for you once and for all. Okay, we understand what we're doing this morning. Let's go for it. First point. When a birthday party becomes a donor event. I love birthday parties. I really do. Especially when it's my own birthday party. It's a little disappointing to hear happy birthday and then know that you're not having any other celebrations. I also don't mind donor events. We had one recently at the seminary. And because I believe in what we're doing, training up a generation of leaders, it was a good event. I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel bad. I believed in our cause and what we are doing. It was a great night. But a birthday party should never become a donor event. In a birthday party, you are celebrating a person, a guest of honor. All focus is on them. But in a donor event, other things are going on, aren't they? There is business going down to some extent or other. There are transactions happening or will happen one way or another. And you see, this prepares us perfectly to understand the issue among the Corinthians. Because their great sin was that they had turned a birthday party into a donor event. How? Well, take a look at the passage at the first part, and I'm just going to reread some of it and talk us through a little bit of it. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together, or when you come together rather, it is not for the better but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there is division among you, and I believe it in part. Now, notice here, the theme that we've been seeing all along in 1 Corinthians that there are some people who are wanting to lift themselves up. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And and this whole sort of wrangling for position, this division in the church 
is still a theme in this passage. Tuck that away as we keep reading. Verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a really interesting verse. Uh, A situation where there's complete peace and harmony, where no one's willing to talk about issues, is actually not a good situation. We, We need to disagree with one another. We need to talk about things so that those who are correct may be found. Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Oh, sorry, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have uh, houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What is happening here? Well, yet again, it's worth knowing a little bit of background that's plain and obvious if you just read a little bit more broadly. That in those days, meals were incredibly significant. You remember that in Acts, Peter is, is feeling very uncomfortable about eating at Cornelius' house. When you ate at somebody's house, when you sat down for a meal in those days, eating was something about friendship, about bonding, about connecting together. And the Greeks and the Romans had some things going on that were not so pleasant, though. In those days, who you invited to eat at your house was really important. And where you seated them was actually important. And indeed, what you gave them to eat was really important. Because inviting somebody over in those days was about a donor event. Take a look at the quote up here that I have written for you. It says, A key to this hierarchy is the seating plan. With a very clear place of honor next to the host, thus creating a kind of power corner privilege with the best views over and out of the room. Every other place at the table was graded lower in status. Games of honor and humiliation were played out in conversation as well, with some people not spoken to nor welcome to speak. Reading on, some were visible, visibly given worse food or less wine than others. Lying on a couch, huddled next to a neighbor, such inequities would be hard to miss. All in all, the convivium could be, for some, a pleasant convivial occasion. For others, it was the dinner party from hell. How is it possible, when you invite somebody over, to show them maximum honor, to show them that they are more important than anybody else? Well, here's what they would do. They would invite people who they didn't like so much as a point of contrast. And so you would seat them in lower places. You wouldn't talk to them and allow them to speak. And you would actually serve your favored guests the better food. And by them looking and seeing they were getting better food than other people, they realized that they were more important than other people. The Corinthians had brought their thinking about eating and drinking at home into the church. Paul says as much. Don't you have your homes to do these kinds of things? But you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. Take a look at this video clip before us here. There has been a lot of times people come in here and they're struggling. With Wrong pregnancy. video clip. 
Take two. I cannot apologize enough, Mrs. Uh, Pegasus. Um, it was a simple case of mistaken identity, I'm afraid. Uh, now, I completely understand how upset you are, but I was hoping perhaps if we could talk... <laughs> Okay, in this clip, a birthday celebration is ruined by a problem. Problem is quite serious. There is the presence of a killer at the birthday party. Not cool. And it's especially serious because the killer looks like grandma. That's very uncool, isn't it? But see, this neatly parallels our passage. Because there is a killer in the Lord's Supper at Corinth. And it is them. It is the people themselves. Through their sectarian behavior, they are inflicting weakness and sickness and death upon themselves. Now, did you see it in the passage that we looked at just a second ago? That they were, it says, despising the church of God. One of the descriptions that's given for the church of God in chapter 10 and through into chapters 12 and 14, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, is not the the church of God, but the body of Christ, the body. Paul has used that already in chapter 10 when he talks about one loaf and we are one body. And later in the passage, a few verses later, when Paul says, you do not recognize the body, he says, you do not discern the body. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, the discerning of the body here is not a discerning, a thinking, a a kind of Zen Buddhist moment meditation so that you are making sure that you are meditating on the Lord at every moment. And that is the guarantee, therefore, that you will not come under punishment. That's how some people read this sometimes. But that is not what this passage is saying at all. Discerning the body has to do with discerning the body. Discerning the fact that we are all members of Christ's body and that if we lower somebody down and push someone aside, then we are degradating Christ and his meal. We're degradating the very things that Christ stands for. Some people have died and have fallen asleep Because this is no longer the Lord's Supper, Paul says. You've hijacked it. You've taken it, some of you, and used it for yourself. This is the entire context from beginning to end of the passage. And this clarifies everything. Point two, judgment. What do you get when you cross an elephant and a potato? 
mashed potato. I'm continuing the dad jokes from last week. Bringing in powerful people, elephants with agendas, who are determined to throw their weight around, when you have other people who can't defend themselves, always ends in the people who are lowly getting stepped on. What if the leadership of a church tries to use the Lord's Supper to exclude certain Christians and to make them less than others? Then these people are doing exactly what this passage warns against. What if the leadership in the church tries to use the Lord's Supper to get people to come to church? This is traditionally what's happened in the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Come to church and you will receive special grace because the minister will transform the sacraments into something else for you, into things that will give you forgiveness and grace. What happens when this is happening? The answer is they're doing exactly what this passage says you shouldn't do. Now, why am I focusing here on leadership? Well, because this is the most obvious context in which this passage can apply. Sure, if in the way that we take the Lord's Supper, a little cut down from what they used to do with the whole meal, sure, if you decide that you're going to line up at church at the 1030 service and and grab hold of all the wafers so that no one else can get any, then you will be breaking what this passage says. Sure, if you try and wrestle the cup from the person who's holding it and drink the whole cup, yes, you will be breaking what this passage says. But realistically, because this passage is about powerful people misusing their position in order to leverage it, to turn the Lord's Supper into something that it isn't, then realistically, this is the right application for this passage. And this changes everything. Because what it shows us is that if we are not power-broking, we can actually come to the Lord's Supper with joy. This is not something to be sitting there fearful. Have I meditated enough on the Lord? Have I committed a sin? Have I done this or that? This is meant to be a celebration of joy. Then the third point, a celebration of joy. The passage from verse 23 to 26, where Paul actually talks about what the Lord does, is all drawing attention to the celebration that this should be for us. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're not going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Like I said, that's fine. But when you see the bread being broken before your eyes and you remember that Jesus broke, had his body broken for you so that you could be forgiven from all your sins and that you could have eternal life, that should well up within you the greatest sense of joy and thankfulness. And then as you take a piece of bread or a wafer, and you eat it and you realize as, simply, as simple as it is to take that down into my body, to just chew it up and swallow it. So simple is it to receive all that Jesus has done for me. I don't have to go to a certain place to receive what Jesus has done for me. I don't have to go through certain rituals. All I must do is put my trust in Jesus who loved me and gave his life up for me. Isn't that something to celebrate? And then Jesus goes on in the same way, Paul goes on, in the same way, 
Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I don't know if you know, but the, the new covenant is mentioned actually in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 33 in the Old Testament. And it says that the new covenant is going to be like this. I will take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will pour out my spirit on them. No longer will a man say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. When Jesus says, this is the new covenant of my blood, he's talking about the reality of what you and I have when we trust in Jesus. We receive his spirit. We don't need someone to say, know the Lord, because we know him, because he is within us. And then we read on. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration because we are remembering all the fantastic things that Jesus did when he laid down his life for us. And then it finishes. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not only is it a looking back at all the things that Jesus, who you now love, has done for you, but it is a looking forward and it's a reminder that one day he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him and we will meet him in the air. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Amen. Comfort one another with these words. See, a hallelujah belongs here. As Paul embeds this, these wonderful words of Jesus and what Jesus does, he is drawing attention to the fact that this is the most fantastic of things that ought not be like a funeral dirge, that ought not to be something that you come with fear and anxiety about, but ought to be something that you come with a sense of deep pleasure and thankfulness and joy. Remember that the first fruit of the Spirit Second, sorry, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Okay, fourth point. We're moving right along here. Something to be done. Let me ask you an important question here. When Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper himself, how many warnings did he give? This is testing your Bible knowledge. I could make this a rhetorical question. How many warnings does Jesus give when, it's institu- when he institutes the Lord's Supper? All the accounts of the gospel. The answer? None. Zero. There are no warnings, actually, when Jesus first institutes the Lord's Supper. And this means that when it was instituted, the focus wasn't upon warning, but the focus was upon the event itself and the celebration of the event. Yes, the Corinthians have messed things up like people always mess things up. And when things are messed up, there's a need to correct the way that it's specifically been messed up. But we need to realize that the Lord's Supper wasn't instituted with a whole host of warnings surrounded it as if it ought to be something that we come with a sense of fear to. What about the Passover meal in the Old Testament on which the Lord's Supper is based? Were there lots of warnings given there? Lots of exclusions to people. Don't come if you haven't visited the temple recently and offered sacrifice. Don't come if you're too young. Don't come if you're intellectually disabled and unable to understand fully. 
or you are poor or you're socially outcast. No. In fact, one of the few warnings, one of the very few warnings that's given, but it's given most strongly, is don't fail to come and take it. Make sure you take it. Make sure you do it. No one should be excluded. That is the warning that is given, much like this passage. And you see, this is the emphasis of our passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself, which I think in context means take a look at yourself and make sure you're not excluding others and pushing others around. But look at what it says. Let a man examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Even the very people who were doing the wrong thing were being encouraged, like the Nike ad, to just do it, to make sure that you don't neglect doing it. So far from the attitude that we can often come to with the Lord's Supper, oh, if I've done one of these things, this month I'll have to miss out, oh, it's like, no, no, get things right and then take it. Now, my fifth point, and lastly, mercy even in the warning. This, I think, is the most extraordinary of things, actually, in this passage. There's actually a word that's translated in this, in this passage not quite correctly. It's the word died, no less. In the original language, it's actually the word fell asleep, fallen asleep. And this reminds us of John 11, verse 11. Remember when Jesus is talking to his disciples about going down and talk and, and raising Lazarus from the dead? He says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. Well, his disciples, typically clueless, didn't catch the hint. They said, Oh, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake himself up, he'll recover. And it says in verse, 11, verse 13, Now Jesus was speaking about his death and about how Lazarus had died and must be brought back to life. You see, what is so wonderful is that the church picked up on these words of Jesus, this tradition of, what Jesus, of Jesus' words as passed down. When Christians referred to each other dying, they referred to them as falling asleep. Isn't that beautiful? It's like my, uh, my dad, all uh, my kids know this little saying, when grandpa goes to take an afternoon nap, he always says, I'm just going to take a little lie down. And it's kind of neat, isn't it? We all know that he's not going to just take a little lie down. He's going to fall asleep and then he's going to wake up. But even that expression captures this so beautifully. When someone dies as a Christian, they are just having a little lie down which points to the fact that they're about to get up and they're about to live again. Now get this. The people who have actually misused the Lord's Supper, the people who have turned this event into not the Lord's Supper but this donor event, even those people are not going to hell. It's only discipline. And the passage tells us that, actually. I'm not sure if the slide's here coming up, but it says, 
verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then it says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There are no fish bones in this passage. There are no fish bones in this passage. Even the very people who have done this horrible thing are not going to hell. They're falling asleep like every Christian does so that one day they will awake. Ought we to come to the Lord's Supper with a deep sense of fear, a deep sense of anxiety that maybe we have got it wrong? This passage tells us no, because it's a celebration. There's a guy that I knew in my early 20s. Let's call him Matt. A wonderful Christian man. His parents were actually deaf, as I recall, both of them. And as a result of this, he was fantastic at sign language. He actually became a minister, a pastor to a deaf congregation. And he used to sign and preach at the same time. He was also a successful businessman. And he ran a successful business. Now, as a result of that, Matt would often go away on business trips during the week. And he would hate being away. One business trip, he had to be away on the weekend. And he hated that in particular because he loved his wife and his family. On this particular business trip, he, he decided to take time away from his business to go to church. And there was a little church right near his hotel. And he went there and sat down. As soon as he got into the service, he was feeling all horrible and lonely. And he looked up and he realized that the Lord's Supper was being celebrated that day. And his heart was filled with joy and excitement as he realized all of his loneliness, he can focus on Jesus and all that he has in Jesus. Well, as the Lord's Supper comes and as the minister is kind of lifting up the bread, he just simply can't help himself, Matt. And he turns to the person next to him, this old man, and says, isn't this fantastic? And the man looks at him in horror and says, shh. After a little while longer, the minister lifts up the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. And overwhelmed for a second time with excitement, he turns to the lady on the other side of him and says, Isn't Jesus great? And she whispers in an angry voice, Quiet! You know, in many ways I don't blame the people that were sitting either side of my friend that day. Because they had probably taken on board this whole idea that the Lord's Supper was something where you needed to be focusing every moment lest you be distracted and somehow eat and drink judgment on yourself. But my friend understood the Lord's Supper as they didn't understand it. It was a celebration. It is a celebration. And my hope and prayer is that the next time you take the Lord's Supper, you will see it as such. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the God who you are. Your word tells us that you are our Heavenly Father. That those who are found in you, Lord Jesus, cannot perish, spoil, or fade. That is our hope. And we cannot be snatched from your hand. We thank you that we have every reason to hope. So, Lord, my prayer is a simple one. We're not taking the Lord's Supper today 
but even as we take it the next time, that for all of us here and forevermore, it might be the celebration it should be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and celebrate together.